Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Please pay attention now to God's word. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. God, we ask now that as we come to you, to your word, you would call us out of our wandering, God, that you would open our eyes, open our ears to see and to hear what you have for us this morning. God, would you cause your word to, to penetrate deeply into our hearts, and God, to change us, to cause us to be more like Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We live in a culture that is obsessed with productivity. And my theory, in part, there's a lot to this, I'm sure, but my theory in part is that because we have so many distractions and because it's so easy to waste our time on so many different things, we feel the need to have these mantras that will make us feel better about ourselves and to somehow justify the effort that we do put into things like our work, our relationships, our hobbies. So whether it's actually feeling guilty for not putting in uh, the effort or it's a realization that we will never actually reach perfection in this life, we say things like, perfection is unattainable. 
progress is within your reach. Or the goal of life is not perfection, it's progress. There was a book published in 2020 called Progress Over Perfection, A Guide to Mindful Productivity, where you can even buy the accompanying workbook, right, to make yourself more productive. Now, is it wrong to acknowledge these limitations and to admit that we will not attain perfection in this life? Well, of course not. The letter to the Hebrews is all about recognizing earthly limitations, right? It's all about recognizing our lack of perfection in what we have to offer. And that's really been the point in these last several chapters. We've seen how the earthly high priest, how the Old Testament sacrificial system is woefully inadequate to address our sins and to address the imperfections that we have. And it might feel like our author here is just banging this same drum, that he's, he just keeps banging the same drum, and it might feel like as we've been going slowly through Hebrews, preaching slowly through Hebrews, that we are banging the same drum as well. And the truth is, we are, right? Because we're trying to be faithful to the scriptures. We're following our author's flow of thought here. But maybe there is a reason for this slowness, right? For why this is, is taking so long. And what I'm about to say now is not from the perspective of a preacher standing up here trying to communicate this to you, but as a fellow recipient of these words who also needs to be challenged just as all of you do. In chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, the author had this to say about Jesus, our great high priest. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now this here is the second of three references to Jesus being made perfect in Hebrews. Now remember, we've said as we've been going through Hebrews, this does not mean that somehow Jesus was at any point imperfect, but this is talking about that through his suffering and through his obedience to God, that he completed the work that the Father sent him to do. So that word being made perfect is talking about completion or fulfillment in that sense. Jesus did the will of God perfectly, which we're going to see later in chapter 10. But right after this verse about Jesus being perfected and the, becoming the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, our author says this, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. This is a strong rebuke here. And while it's easy to just, again, see this as something that those people way back then needed to hear, right? We actually need to be reminded of these things here today. We are them, right? In other words, we are similarly so often dull of hearing. And we need to be reminded about the same things from God's word over and over again. And Hebrews is a great place for those reminders. Remember, the flow of Hebrews is that we're kind of weaving in and out from instruction and exhortation. We're being told what is true, and then we're being told what to do. And it's been kind of going back and forth, especially in the first four chapters. There's a lot of flow from instruction to exhortation. But we've been in this long section now since the beginning of chapter 6. We haven't had an exhortation. It's been all instruction all just teaching about the priesthood of Jesus since chapter 6. So there's been a lot of reminders, 
about his superiority to the Old Testament, to the Old Testament sacrificial system, the, the priesthood, and really the entire Old Covenant. Next week, we're finally going to come to an exhortation or encouragement, and that's really going to kind of carry us through the end of uh, Hebrews, from, from the middle of chapter 10 through all the way through the end of chapter 13. There's one little section in chapter 12 where there's a few verses about with some instruction, but pretty much from here on out, it's going to be all like exhortation and encouragement. How, how do we live? So, Again, we've been in this long section of instruction. So why do we need all of this repetition? Why do we need like four and five chapters here of constant instruction? Well, first is because that, as we've already seen, we are dull of hearing. And, it's, and second is that there are many competing narratives out there that are vying for our attention and our allegiance. We need to be reminded what the truth is and what God's truth is because even as Andrew was talking about with the kids there, right? There's all these, like we're going to encounter all these different worldviews that are going to be saying things that are opposed to what God says and what is true. We may think the phrase, the goal of life is not perfection, it is progress, is harmless. But does that phrase tell the full story? Do we need to define our terms more carefully and not pit perfection and progress against each other like all of these mantras seek to do. I think this passage really helps us to do that. So let's dive in now. If you're taking notes, the question put before us in the sermon title is, so you want to be perfect? First, in verses 1 through 4, if you want to be perfect, first, I have some bad news for you. This is just the further reiteration of what we've seen in these last few chapters. Look at the problem that is restated here in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So the Old Testament sacrificial system and the Day of Atonement rituals that are being explained here that are continually offered every year, they cannot make us perfect. So they are limited. They are limited in a few ways. First, they cannot make perfect those who draw near to God. There's this inability, which we've seen over and over, of the Old Testament sacrificial system to make us perfect in the sight of God. Author goes on to explain here that this whole system was a shadow of the good things to come. We saw this back in chapter 8, verse 5, that the earthly priests, they served a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Now, when Moses was instructed in Exodus chapter 25 to make the tabernacle, he was told to make everything according to the pattern that was shown to him on the mountain. The pattern that was shown to him was heaven itself. So that is the greater reality. Heaven is actually the true tent and the true sanctuary. We saw this last week in chapter 9, verse 23. In our community group this week, we had a good discussion about this. We talked about how it's hard sometimes to think about heaven and to think about life beyond this earth and beyond this reality because we can't see it. Right? It's hard to think about something that we can't see. But the reality that we're confronted with 
here is not that heaven is patterned after our earthly experience of what we can see and taste and touch. So it's not that we're going to get to heaven and that's going to be this like better reality of what we experience here. It's actually that everything that we experience here is patterned after the heavenly reality. Heaven is the true form of these realities that we see here in verse one. And the earthly things, the earthly ways that we live are just a shadow. It's a shadow that is, that is cast forward pointing us to our ultimate reality. So there was perfection before there was imperfection. The heavenly reality existed before Moses built this earthly tabernacle. Even after God created Adam and Eve, they walked in perfect fellowship with God for a time. So should that make us think differently about the perfection versus the progress mantras? Maybe, but first, our author still wants to drive home to us the bad news. And he does it in verse two with this great rhetorical question. He says, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin? The question here, otherwise, meaning if the Old Testament law could perfect the worshipers, would they... Would they need these sacrifices anymore? And the obvious answer is no, right? If this could have, if these sacrifices could have done that work, then they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be needed anymore. We saw this back in chapter 9, verse 9, that the gifts and the sacrifices that are offered under the earthly system cannot perfect the consciences of the worshipers. So we have this problem that our consciences are not clean before God. Instead, verse 3. In these sacrifices, so since these sacrifices can't perfect us, in them, there is a reminder of sins every year. And this is not a good thing, right? This is not good news that every year on the Day of Atonement, while there is this glorious reality that God is going to be merciful and he's going to pass over the sins of the people, the very the very sight of those sacrifices, the very fact that they need to take place is a reminder that they're not sufficient. For, in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So they cannot perfect us, and it's impossible for them to take away our sins. This is really bad news. And it's not new news. This has been the drumbeat since the middle of chapter 7, that perfection is not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. That's why Jesus is necessary. Our author has appealed to Melchizedek in chapter 7, looking back to the book of Genesis and to Psalm 110. He's appealed uh, to Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, speaking of the new covenant in chapter 8. He's appealed to the instructions about the ordering of the, the tabernacle in Exodus 25 and 26 in chapter 9. All for the purpose, he's pointed back to all of those things, all for the purpose of showing us the superiority of Christ. He's showing that all those other things were insufficient to do what was necessary for our forgiveness. Now in verses 5 through 7, he's going to do something that he did back in chapter 2, uh, where he quoted from Psalm 22. And here he places the words of David from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, on the lips 
of Jesus. Now, the quotation of this psalm offers both a rebuke to the Israelites, to their mistaken notion that they could please God by their sacrifices and offerings. So it's a rebuke in that sense, and it's an affirmation that Christ did the will of God by offering up his body as the perfect sacrifice. That's what is explained in verses 8 through 10 as our author then gives this commentary on these verses. Look at verse 9, the second half of verse 9. It says that he does away with the first in order to establish the second. So Jesus does away with the first order of sacrifices, and he established the second order, which was his perfect obedience to the will of God, which we see in verse 10, where it says, By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, we need to take a minute here. Uh, this, we've seen this word used previously in the book of Hebrews, but we need to take a minute here and try to understand this phrase, we have been sanctified. Now, the first thing that's worth mentioning, mentioning kind of a, a grammar thing in the Greek, is that this word where it says we have been sanctified, this is in the perfect tense. Now, this is Something, we've explained this a few times before, this is something that happens, an event that happens in the past, so if you're like thinking in terms of a line, there is a dot, okay, there is a point in time where something happens, speaking of, of Jesus' death and Jesus' sanctifying of us, and then there is a line going into the future with an arrow pointing into the future that starts from that dot and goes into the future. So the saying, we have been sanctified definitively, there is something that has happened in time, and the, the consequences of that once for all event go on into the future and they keep going. So we are the beneficiaries of that event that happened. Okay. So that's, that's important for us to kind of keep our minds around with, with this idea of being sanctified here. And then there are two ways to understand sanctification. We often think about sanctification as our continual growth in grace. And we call that progressive sanctification. Uh, much of the language in the New Testament about where Paul talks about putting our sin to death. Uh, Romans chapter 6, which I ref referenced earlier in the pastoral prayer, it's a great chapter to look at in terms of sanctification. Putting off the old and putting on the new, that is progressive sanctification. That is that moment by moment, day by day, seeking to walk in the power of the Spirit and become more like Christ. We've seen progressive sanctifica sanctification language repeatedly in Hebrews so far through many of the exhortations. Chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And these are all things that are talking about our progressive sanctification, especially that verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, go on to maturity. That is, a, that is a very clear distinction, right, that we are to grow in our Christian lives. And these things are all the work of God's free grace, as we saw in our shorter catechism question, number 35, where it says that we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. It is this picture of progress. 
And this doesn't just happen, right? We all know that. You don't just like roll out of bed and, and just grow in your faith by just doing nothing. I think this is where the analogy from nature is very important and very helpful. The, nature, the, the analogy of seeds being planted. These seeds are planted and they are watered and they receive nutrients from the soil. They receive sunlight. And there are all these things that need to happen for this, these seeds to, to actually take root and to grow. There are many factors that are at work in our sanctification. Ultimately, in that analogy, it is God by his spirit who gives the growth, but we need to be active in that process. The other way that we must understand sanctification, there's progressive sanctification, then we need to understand what we call definitive sanctification. And that is what is described here in Hebrews 10.10. Jesus once for all offering of himself for our sins and God, God's uniting us to Christ by grace through faith means that we are sanctified or set apart, made holy. That's the word in the Greek, literally, the word for sanctified literally means to make holy. We are made holy in a definitive sense. We might think of it in terms of a change of status or in terms of our position. Our former status was dead in sin or positionally we were separated from God. Now in Christ, we are made alive and we are united to Christ. And this is a once for all change. Remember that perfect tense. There's something that has definitively happened and then there's going to be ongoing results because of that. It's important to remember that when we think about the difference between justification and sanctification, justification deals with the reality of the guilt of sin in our lives. Sanctification deals with the power of sin. So this is then what the confession speaks of as us being renewed in the whole man after the image of God. This renewal is the great truth that is described in 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's this definitive change in our lives. But why is it important to distinguish then these two elements of sanctification? Is this just something that like theologians sit around and debate about and write about in books? Well, maybe, but I think it's also important for us uh, to to think through and to, to recognize in our own lives because there are two pitfalls that must always be avoided. On the one hand, one pitfall we have is legalism and moralism. This is where we see our progressive sanctification as something that we do on our own strength, right? I need to try really hard to please God. I need to work. And if I don't do enough, God's not going to be happy with me. So that, that tends to fall off the cliff in this side is being legalistic and moralistic rather than working from the foundation of our definitive sanctification. Okay, so that's the one pitfall. The pitfall on the other side is license, right? License to sin or antinomianism, meaning we're like against the law of God. It means that we minimize our need to obey God. We minimize the need to obey his law because we say, okay, I've been, I've trusted in Jesus. I've been positionally or definitively sanctified. So I'm good, right? I don't need to, I don't need to worry about like trying to live this holy life and trying to be sanctified because I've been definitively sanctified. And those are the errors on both extremes. I think both of these pitfalls 
stem from an improper understanding of the weightiness of our sin. If you've been around here very long, you know that I love J.C. Ryle. Uh, We named our son after him, Ryle. And I haven't had many opportunities lately to quote uh, J.C. Ryle because he didn't write anything. I didn't write any commentaries on Hebrews. So my, my, you know, Ryle stuff has been drying up a little bit. Um, But he did write a whole book on sanctification. It's actually his most well-known work, and it's called Holiness. Uh, Holiness was written uh, in the kind of mid to late 1800s to address some unbiblical teachings that were going on uh, in England in Ryle's day regarding perfectionism. So there was this whole movement uh, that kind of came out of like the Wesleyan tradition of perfectionism, and it was called, they called it sanctification by faith. Now, you might hear that and say, well, yeah, like sanctification by faith, like that's a good thing, right? Well, but what they meant by that, it was kind of comparable to the Pentecostal view of of healing and of prosperity. Basically saying, if you just have enough faith in the prosperity gospel, right? If you just have enough faith, God will heal you. So people will say things like, well, the reason you didn't get healed is because you didn't have enough faith. Or the reason you're not not rich and you don't have all these blessings from God is because you don't have enough faith. Well, the sanctification by faith movement was actually kind of saying the same thing. They were basically saying that if you just have enough faith, you will actually be perfect. Like you will not struggle with sin anymore. And this was a huge problem, right? And like anyone who's like walked with the Lord for any amount of time and been confronted with your own sin, you're going like, uh, like what? Um, so yeah, this is, this is a big thing going on. And again, the kind of this confusion of, of progressive and definitive sanctification. So listen to how Ryle begins his book on sanctification. The first chapter in the book is appropriately titled Sin. Listen to how he starts. This is the first paragraph of this this entire work on sanctification. He that wishes to attain right views about Christian holiness must begin by examining the vast and solemn subject of sin. He must dig down very low if he would build high. A mistake here is most mischievous. Wrong views about holiness are generally generally traceable to wrong views about human corruption. I make no apology for beginning this volume of papers about holiness by making some plain statements about sin. I have argued that... I needed to start off by telling you the bad news. The bad news is that our own sin and the ineffectiveness of the earthly sacrificial system is bad news, right? It cannot do what we need it to do. That is the bad news. Now, let me tell you the good news. The good news began in this passage in verse 5, as we've covered already, verses 5 through 10, talking about what Christ has done Uh, to to please the Father and to do the will of the Father. And then in verse 11, there's actually this doubling back to verse 1, which is going to reiterate some of the bad news before making this very clear contrast that again points out the superiority of Christ. Verse 1 addressed the need for continual sacrifices yearly on the Day of Atonement. Remember, we saw the words, if you look back in verse 1, it's right in the middle there, it says, can never. 
okay? Can never pertaining to perfecting those who draw near. Here we see in verse 11 that the earthly priests stand daily at their service, offering repeatedly or continually the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So that inability is, is reminded, we're reminded of there. One thing, right? Day of atonement can never do this. Daily sacrifices can never take away sins. And this was a massive problem that the priests with all of their flurry of activity, look at verses five and six, sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings, all of those things that they were continuing to do on a daily basis, those things could not fix the human condition. Those things could not deal with our sin. And here comes the good news in verse 12. Verse 12 and following. Verse 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. There are three things that I want us to see here, things that we've seen already, but they bear repeating. The first is the phrase, for all time. Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. There is a finality in Jesus' sacrifice, and we've hammered this home many times already. Next thing is that there is a single sacrifice for sins. Chapter 9, 26 says that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We've seen that, especially in chapter 9, this repetition of Jesus doing something once for all. It is, it is completed. It is, and it is singular. The third thing we need to see here is that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. Now notice the contrast with verse 11. What did the earthly priests do daily? They stood, right? They were standing. There were, and if we think about the tabernacle, there were many pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, but one piece of furniture was glaringly missing in the tabernacle. A chair, right? Or a couch. There was no place for the priest to sit down and rest. They were constantly busy. They were constantly doing that work. Jesus sat down on his throne at the right hand of God, after he made his for all time single sacrifice for sin. This is combined with the language of verse 13, where it says, waiting for that, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Again, this is a reference to Psalm 110, verse 1, where it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the most quoted verse Uh, from the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Jesus actually quotes this verse himself to show that David was speaking about him. It's been quoted several times already in Hebrews, reminding us that Jesus reigns as king, just as he does as prophet and priest. One of the passages where we saw this threefold office of Jesus mentioned was in the very beginning of Hebrews. It says that God has spoken to us in the last days by his son, Hebrews 1-2, Then Hebrews 1.3 connects to our passage here and speaking of Jesus says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it is from there that he will come again to judge the living and the dead and that his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. This imagery here is not a pretty picture. 
You do not want to be on the receiving end of a conquering king coming and putting his foot on your neck. That means death and judgment. And that will be the outcome for all of those who do not bow the knee to King Jesus. That's the bad news for those who trust in the human sacrificial system or who trust in their own works to try and please God. The only alternative, the only superior way, which is good news, is presented to us here in verse 14. Look with me at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice again the parallels back to verse 1. The high priest on the Day of Atonement offered sacrifices that could never make perfect those who draw near. But Jesus, here we see, by his single sacrifice, by his single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This word here, has perfected, also in the perfect tense, okay? Jesus did something definitively He perfected us once for all, and then there's this ongoing, continually growing, right? Continually being perfected, those who are being sanctified. So we like, uh, or here, we need to see this both as definitive and progressive, the progressive reality of our sanctification. And we like to think about this in terms of the already and the not yet. So we must remember that we are already positionally and in terms of our status before God, we are already perfected by Jesus' single offering. And that is great. And we need to work off of that foundation and we need to work from that reality. However, because of sin that continues to to remain, we are not yet fully perfected in this life. That is the false teaching that J.C. Ryle was going after in holiness. That is why progressive sanctification is needed. Progressive sanctification must be the work of God's spirit in our hearts and in our minds to confirm his promises to us as we seek to live lives that are pleasing to God. That's basically what we see reiterated here in verses 15 through 17 as our author quotes again from the promises of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, 33, and 34. See verse 15 there, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. So the Holy Spirit bears witness to what has been written and what our author has already reminded us of. And these things are are related then, uh, connected back to what we've already seen about our progressive sanctification. So we've been talking a lot about sanctification then in this passage, but this passage isn't only about sanctification. We do also see here the truth of our justification, which is the act of God's free grace where he pardons all our sins and he accepts us as righteous in his sight because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice. The promise in verse 17 here from Jeremiah 31, 34, is that God will remember our sins and our lawless deeds no more. This word for remember might sound familiar because we saw it back in verse 3. This is good news here in light of what we saw in verse 3. We were told in verse 3 that in the sacrifices, these yearly sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Now we see that under the new covenant, 
God will remember our sins and our lawless deeds no more. So there's a very clear contrast here about how Jesus' sacrifice and his death, what he has done for us, God remembers our sins no more. Then we're told in verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, speaking of our sins and lawless deeds in verse 17, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This here is the cherry on top of this whole long section that is arguing for Jesus' superiority all the way since chapter four, since it's been arguing for the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus. If your sins are forgiven, then it is finished. There is no more offering that could be made to satisfy the penalty for our sins. There's nothing you can do to try to please God and make him forget your sins besides trusting in Christ, right? There's nothing that you can add to what Jesus has already done for you. It has been paid for Jesus once and for all at the cross. That is good news, my friends. So this, we need to ask ourselves, right? This is either, you either hear this today and hear these realities as good news that my sins are forgiven because of Jesus and there's nothing I can do or it's bad news if you say, now nah, I'm good, like I can take care of this on my own. Then you do not want to hear these words, right? right? This is bad news for you. And we've, as we've already talked, like this is the king coming and putting his foot on your neck. You do not want to be on the receiving end of that judgment. So if you have not yet trusted in Christ, now is the time. Now is the time to turn to him. To say there's nothing I can do to come to God on my own terms. There's nothing I can bring with my own hands. There's nothing that I can do that will please God. Christ alone has done the will of the Father. Christ alone has pleased him with the single sacrifice for all time. So the question, do you want to be perfect? If you say yes, good, right? That's the answer. You should say yes. You should want perfection. But there is only one way to get it, and it's Jesus. I like how one commentator summarizes what Jesus has done for us according to these verses. So let me close with these words. Speaking of Christ, the covenant he mediates imparts the inseparable twin blessings of once for all forgiveness and powerful transformation of heart making us willing and able to obey God's law. As we rest in the sufficiency of Christ's blood to remove our guilt, we will submit gladly to his heavenly reign. We trust and obey. Amen. Let us pray. God, we can never tire of hearing these truths. We can never tire of being reminded over and over and over of what Jesus has done for us, that by his blood, by his sacrifice, by his death in our place, God, that we are forgiven, we are cleansed, our sins are remembered no more. And God, that we are in a position of being perfect in your sight because of the work of Christ. But we are also reminded of the power of indwelling sin. We are reminded that it is a daily battle, that we are in a war, and that we must fight that battle 
putting to death our sin by the power of your spirit, not by our own strength. So God, we ask that as your people, you would fill us with your spirit. You would help us to walk in holiness, to walk in sanctification by the power of your spirit because of who we are in Christ. God, so send us out from here to do that, to live out these realities because of our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.